Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of Better Words. Welcome back. Um, We are doing another little mini book club discussion today. Usually this means we read the same book and discuss it and discuss our feelings around it, obviously without spoilers. Um, But today we're doing something slightly different and we're sort of focusing on one author's works. I've read two of her books. Caitlin's read one. Um... And then I reread it because Caitlin reading it made me want to reread it. Um, so, yeah, we're sort of going to be talking about that today. Um, so, the author is Janice Hallett, and Caitlin has read her book, The Appeal. And I've read her new book, The Mysterious Case of the Alperton Angels. And then I reread The Appeal. Um, but we wanted to, to talk about that in terms of like the format and, yeah, just what we thought of the books. So, take it away. <laughs> I still can't believe you reread the appeal. <laughs> yeah, in about I think my e-reader said it took like four hours. Yeah, that's insane. I mean, you had already read it, I suppose, so it probably was a bit quicker on the second go. I did. But... I there were some bits that I skimmed. Like I did. Yeah, I paid more attention the first time because I could remember some things. Yeah, but oh man, this book. So the appeal, um, Michelle recommended on this podcast. A year ago more than that I don't know yeah so that's the other thing that makes this a bit strange technically we have talked about this book before but it's because I recommended it and then we thought it would be an interesting discussion yes so Michelle has been on me outside of the podcast to read this book and so I actually bought it in a little bookshop in Bath when I was overseas for your wedding uh so it was one of my I was like oh well this is you know Michelle's been nagging me to read it. The English you make me sound cover. Horrible. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we sort of both joke about nagging each other to read different books, but I really feel like you really kept up on this one, and I am glad because I did really, really enjoy it. So, the appeal. I started reading it on the ferry to the Jeanette McCurdy thing, actually. So I had maybe forty minutes or something to read ish. And I read like 50 pages or whatever among texting people and everything because I'm pretty sure I wasn't even off the ferry when I texted you and I said, I've started reading The Appeal. Izzy is so fucking annoying. (laughs) So that you know who Izzy is, The Appeal is uh, a set of documents, I guess, handed to some lawyers and it contains emails, texts. Yeah, and basically their their professor says to them, I want to hear your thoughts on this case. Um, So there are all these texts and um, emails and they're all around different people um, and one of the main people is Izzy and she is indeed very annoying. But basically it's a community theatre production. In the middle of the production, the director person reveals that his granddaughter has been diagnosed with cancer and they decide to start a fundraising appeal, um, a bit like a GoFundMe sort of thing. And so a lot of the book centres on that, the fundraising 
this massive amount, I think it's £250,000 they need to raise yeah. to pay for this experimental treatment. Um, and a lot of questions yeah, get this raised. this poor two-year-old who's got cancer. Yeah. And the whole um, community gets behind them around, like, two central families who are sort of the key members of the theatre group. And then, like, a few extras, some of whom who work together at a hospital. You know, there's this whole cast of characters all emailing each other constantly and texting each other constantly about the play, about other things, about the fundraising appeal and plans for that. Oh, and the main family also owns, like, a hotel, and so it's, like, some people who work there. And so it's this big interconnected web with people, like, emailing each other and... You get, you know, partway through the book, like almost halfway or over halfway, and someone is murdered. And then it's like, well, who murdered who? What was really going on? So for like almost the second half of the book, you're reading mainly emails and messages between the law students with some extra evidence added. Yeah. And like their trying reports to work out. as they're trying to work yeah. out what happened and write their reports for their professor. I mean, it's so crazy. I still don't want to give away any spoilers, but it's so crazy. No. I was trying to guess what was going to happen at the end, as the law students do. So as as everything I thought of, where you're like, you know, basic level, we've told you it's fundraising. So we're like, oh, is someone being, are they being frauded? Is, yeah. you know, are they trying to save the hotel? Like these basic things. And as the... <laughs> As the law students are coming up with various theories that I was trying to guess, I was like, oh, well, if I'm saying it already, that might not be it or something else is going <laughs> to happen or, like, whatever. It is so crazy. Yeah. But the format is so interesting. And as I was, like, you know, chatting to people and stuff and saying, oh, I'm reading this book and it's, you know, all emails and letters. And a couple of people were like, oh, I hate that style. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I love that style. But... I have only ever read books in this style that are like romance or contemporary fiction about friendship or things like that. And it's just mainly, well, way less characters communicating with each other. And it's, you just kind of go along, like reading it all as evidence really changes this kind of format for a novel. Mm. And it's so fascinating. I think I think I keep I keep recommending thrillers because obviously I also recommended Wrong Place Wrong Time by Gillian McAllister and I recommended that because of its unique format. This is the other book I would say is such a groundbreaker in terms of the way it's formatted as a thriller um, to tell the story entirely through these documents. I think just it makes it so fast paced and one of the key things is that the person who is murdered, you never hear from them. So a lot of the documents you're seeing, a lot of the emails you're seeing might just be one-sided. And that's really interesting because you might get replies to replies yeah. and you start trying to read between the lines of things. Um, and then, you know, a little bit more evidence gets revealed later on. And, you know, it, it really does take you along for the ride. When I first started it, I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm never going to keep up with, like, who all these characters are. But it's amazing how quickly, even just through the emails and texts, like, they really do come to life. And quite quickly, you are fully immersed in this community. They really do. And you just, I found myself as well, like, quite early on in the documents, there's, like, a family tree thing that really lays out who everyone is. And I was like, oh, my God, this list is so long. Like, I'm going to get so confused between 
so-and-so and so-and-so or like their father and son or whatever and you really don't like I was so aware and like all the different relationships as different people are slightly different as they talk to various people you know like between husband yeah, and wife you and see their someone emails else to someone different else's people. husband or something like it's yeah it is crazy and I don't think you have to have been involved in a kind of tight-knit community in this way to get that out of the book but as anyone who's listened before would know like Michelle and I met doing in a musical theatre society and so we sort of like have been joking to each other like oh this you know in a small town as well like there's key families there's key players there's people who work together you know like all of that stuff and it's so funny but I mean any community is like this really yeah I think there's any community but yeah there's just something extra where I know you don't read much crime and I was like I think you're going to really enjoy this because you will be able to picture immediately people that we know in these sort of situations um Another reason why I wanted to discuss Janice Heller and like fully will say, I keep telling you, I really want to have her on the podcast. So <laughs> Janice, if you're listening, please join us on the podcast. Um, yes, or if I, we do one day, we'll just talk about all of this again with her. <laughs> we will, but you know, it'll be about a new book. Um, but basically like she's such an amazing success story. And I know again, like I, she has obviously has been published over, like with Gillian McAllister, It's not been as big over here, but she was such a smash hit in the UK with the appeal. And I know that like you having read it now, you will, you will see why it was such a unique thing. Um, And like, I'm just looking at an article from the bookseller saying, and it starts saying, it's hard to believe that only two years ago, the name Janice Hallett had never been heard in bookshops. And that genuinely like this book as a debut novel is such a like assured, um, accomplished, and really like just it's so hard to believe this is her debut novel. <laughs> it's so intricate, and there's so many layers to everyone and to different parts of the story. It's incredible. You know, she was one of the biggest selling books in 2021 in the UK, um, and like it just doesn't surprise me at all because this book, I think, captivates it can captivate any reader and there's just something like that is just such a talent and I I think that I heard her say in an interview that she doesn't intricately plot out her books which is just even more mind-blowing because everything just works together in the way that this all plays out like it's just amazing and there's none of it is like prose it's all like found documents or pieces and I just it's so unique and I love it I love it so much and your recent read was her third novel is that right yes yeah so I also read her second novel The Twyford Code and I do I do recommend it but the thing for me with The Twyford Code so it's told a lot through transcripts and some of the mystery is to do with how the transcripts um how the computer generated transcripts are interpret certain words but I read that at the time when I was knee deep in uh getting ready to script the camel podcast that I've got coming out and so I was (laughs) knee deep in going through hours of my own 
transcripts where like camel becomes camera and stupid things like that. So I think reading that I was a bit like, uh, it was just like too close to home. <laughs> yeah. I didn't enjoy it. And also like, that's my day to day. So I did not find that, that like, it just didn't work for me, even though I still enjoyed it. I just, it reading the mysterious case of the Alcatan angels, which is the brand it was new bad one, timing. Took me back. It, it took me straight back to the appeal because it's written very similar. So um, this one, I actually will include a link to like my full little review of it. Cause I did write a, a, a review on my Substack. Um, so I've got a little summary there. Basically in this one, um, we follow a true crime author, journalist, um, it revolves around the case of the Alperton Angels. So this happened 18 years ago. They were convinced that um, the Antichrist was amongst them and they needed to sacrifice the Antichrist, who was a baby, um, and that, that was like their divine mission. It was like a cult thing. Um, but someone, the mother of the baby, called the police and it all gets stopped. But there is like, they sort of had like a suicide pact. Um, there is a surviving cult leader and he gets put in jail. And so now, 18 years later, the journalist Amanda is um, signed on by a publishing house to chase down and find the baby who would now be out of the foster system, would be an adult and could talk to the media. Um, they want to write an exclusive story about that night. And what happened? She finds out that her old rival... Oliver, another journalist, is also chasing the same story and they're sort of racing each other to find the big breaks in the case. Um, and so obviously, like from my mention of being a journalist, you know that it had me hooked, but I didn't actually know any of that when I went in. Um, I purely was just like, I love Janice Hallett's work. Yeah. I will read whatever she writes. Um and I had read half of it on the plane from Sydney back to Rockhampton. <laughs> Like it was because it's just so easy to read. You're reading all these text messages. And again, it is very much basically this is presented as all this research and all these documents are in a safety deposit box. And you, the reader, have to decide when you finish reading it, will you take it to the police or will you forget it ever existed? And you're like, what the hell? But it makes sense when you get to the end. After having read The Appeal now, I'm really keen to read her other books because the style is just so interesting and the second I'm one to read the other is, ones well the second one the twyford code is loosely based it's based on the idea that this prolific children's author Enid Blyton uh had put a mysterious code in all her books um so I think you'll enjoy that too because like the idea of that is quite fun and it is very much it's very obviously based on Enid Blyton books and oh, you know okay. we all can picture that from our childhood and then the Alberton Angels stuff um is a bit different from I think what you would usually do but she does actually reference cultish by Amanda Montell in there which is <laughs> both read <laughs> yeah that's but yeah that's what I was gonna say is that the other two seem a little bit more crimey in that way that like the appeal was a small town a small community it was one of those crazy things that you know like it's not like this big unsolved cold case kind of thing um it's it's yeah I mean it's not a small crime because it was a murder but you know what I mean yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I think though, now that you've read that, if you enjoy that style, I think at the, like, I think I am just hooked on, I will read whatever she writes in that style because I just love the way the mystery unfolds. It just adds this other element to the story yeah. and it's just such a unique way to tell a story. Um, it moves so quickly. I know it's only going to take me like a day to read because I just get so hooked. And again, like with The Appeal, it really didn't take long for these characters to come to life in my mind. The difference with the the Alperton Angels um, is that, you know, in The Appeal there is a crucial character who we never hear from, um, whereas or we don't hear from till right at the end. Whereas we hear from the main character in Alperton Angels the whole way through. So she's so clear in your mind. Um, And I think that that's, I think that's really interesting. There are transcripts and stuff in this too. Um, And like, obviously as a journalist, I was like, oh yeah. And the idea of, you know, a story that gets under your skin and you really obsessively want to chase it. Like I totally get that. Um, But something and this, like, okay, this may be a slight spoiler. So skip, skip, skip if you don't want to hear this. Um, because I think this is really interesting. There's two dedications um, bookending the Alpatania Angels. The one at the start says for Michelle, Jill and Lyra. And then at the end, it says for Michelle McNamara, Lyra McKee and Jill Dando, three journalists who all tragically became the story. And... The reason I give that spoiler warning is because that could give away a little bit of maybe where the story is going. I still don't think that it would give away a lot. Um, but I just found it really interesting that they made that publishing decision to not give the full dedication at the start, just yeah. in case. Um, but the book was, the, the idea for the story was partly inspired by Michelle McNamara's I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which, as you know, Caitlin, is one of the books that inspired me too and I love it and like it's terrifying but her writing is amazing and I think she is an yeah. amazing talent um, that we sadly lost when she passed away in the middle of writing that book. So I just found it interesting that Janice Hallett was also really inspired by that idea as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, a bit of an un- unconventional book club from us but you know having read these books around the same time and everything and just such a fresh format so we can really recommend all of Jen's honestly Hallett's like books. if you just want a book especially I feel like especially good for a holiday if you just like want to devour a book for a few days and you want that experience of having a book that you cannot stop thinking about yeah. All like all of Janice Hallett's books are and like, like feel accomplished because you'll devour it and the appeal B format was like five hundred pages and yeah, yeah you will get through it. It's, it's so I just flew through it and like even the the thing is too I think it's not such an obvious mystery that there is that like lovely reread appeal like I read it when it came out in twenty twenty one so what like two years later a year later yeah I mean it's early Uh, 2023 so potentially less than two years it's probably okay so like a year and a half later and I sat down on the weekend and reread it and really didn't remember what like how it was all going to unfold and could really enjoy the story again um like I remembered certain people I was like I feel like I remember where this is going but I could just enjoy 
the story um, and I really appreciate that because sometimes you can worry about a thriller like if a twist is revealed is it going to ruin the whole thing but actually like you enjoy it just as much the second time round. I think um, yeah yeah I heard an how author do you, say do you... once that if they are writing a book um, and like figure out their own twist or something and it's not working then like they can't go back and work it because they know what's going to happen oh that's interesting I know yeah. I forget who I heard say that once it was at like a festival event or something but I just thought that was interesting I just want to I really and the reason I want to get Janice Hallett on the podcast like behind the scenes here guys um but How I want to hear you her process whole... oh yeah I know I want to I want to be inside her brain like it's just how does she do it it's amazing and that like I think really strongly hit me this this time reading the third book going oh Caitlin please let's I know that we don't have time (laughs) authors on but like I was just like she's so I want to know the writing process for this and it's just like honestly like I've never because like you said I've read like whatever that format I can't say the word um that letter format before but it's always yeah like contemporary emails it's never like this piecing together of a mystery in this way it's just so clever it's so smart (laughs) yeah it is yeah are you glad that I nagged you until you read it yes (laughs) yay (laughs) I really enjoyed it yeah, I'm really, I'm so, I'm so glad because it would have, I would have been really disappointed if you didn't like it. I would have been disappointed in myself <laughs> for not knowing <laughs> what you'd like. Um, I'm so glad that you did enjoy it. It is, yeah, I just think it's, it's one of those, like, like what I said about wrong place, wrong time. It's a thriller, but it's one that non-thriller readers can really get into and enjoy, especially the appeal because it has that like small town community yeah. feel as well yeah, um, definitely so now on to another book that we're absolutely obsessed with and an author we are absolutely obsessed with uh, in a <laughs> completely different way and a different genre we're very wide yeah, readers but, really yeah and we're like look once we love you we obsessively love you so yeah. <laughs> enjoy Our guest today is a writer from Melbourne. She writes our favourite kind of books, character-led romantic comedies, and she also writes about pop culture for the age. Much like us, she loves croissants and her dog, a corgi called Victor. She hates being called Jen. Very sorry if I've referred to you as that with Caitlin before. Um, And her debut novel, No Hard Feelings, was published by HarperCollins in 2021. Today, though, we are going to be focusing on her wonderful second novel, Crushing. And yes, before we get into it as well, a bit of a disclaimer, Caitlin also works at HarperCollins for those who are new to the podcast. That is not why we've invited Jen on, Genevieve on. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Oh my God, I didn't even hear that I did that actually. (laughs) Um, That is not why we've invited our guest, who I don't even think I've said her name yet. Um, So after all that chaotic intro, 
Our guest today is Genevieve Novak. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, we had you on because we really, really love your books. And I'm pretty sure when I finally got around to reading No Hard Feelings, which Caitlin sent me ages before it came out, and then I didn't read it for ages because the cover made it look a bit sadder than it was. And I started reading it and I was like, oh my God, Caitlin, this book is amazing. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to talk to you about your book, clearly. We're so excited that we've completely lost all of our professionalism. <laughs> I never had any to begin with, so we're all good. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. No worries. And the shred of professionalism I do have means I tr- I really try and draw the line about who are, we can't have every single HarperCollins author on. I feel a bit weird about it sometimes if I'm working on a book um, or something like that. But no, just a fan so happy you're here Genevieve and I actually just want to jump straight into I'm going to ask you about these covers because as Michelle said Mm. the cover for No Heart Feelings looks a little bit sadder than it probably is and the whole like sad girl cover thing is you know it's quite funny and like I don't know if you've seen like people recreate the cover of No Heart Feelings on Instagram and and you know other covers in that sort of woman sweat like leaning over a couch type thing and crushing while quite different the cover is also a bit of that sad girl thing how do you feel about that label of like the sad girl cover book I mean um we've been we've been slotting both books kind of loosely into the sad girl lit genre not you know as heavily as say your your Sally Rooney's or or anything like that but I mean feel like the closer um category for it is more like dumb bitch lit it's just stupid (laughs) being making all the wrong choices until they finally stumble onto the right choice so um i mean yeah the covers don't necessarily suggest dumb bitch but i mean there are nice little metaphors in the the cover for crushing that reflect um, my protagonist's journey so i'll take that and that's a very pretentious answer but i stand by it (laughs) i love love that That's so true, though, like the whole way through both No Hard Feelings and Crushing um, with No Hard Feelings, our main character is Penny, Crushing is Marnie, both of them. I was like, at points, I was just like, what are you doing? It's just, it's crazy. So before we go any further, let's get you to tell us all about Crushing. Uh, We had this discussion amongst ourselves and we had a bit of a chat before we started recording that it's kind of hard to come up with questions for character-driven novels and it's hard when you don't want to give away any spoilers. So we'll let you do the honours of explaining the story (laughs) to start with and then we'll have a bit of a chat about it. Sure. So Crushing um, is about a serial monogamist who takes a break from dating and immediately meets someone who is the love of her life. So um, she has so much to learn and so many obstacles that she puts in her own way that um, we spend a good 90,000 words trying to solve. And I am so proud of it. Um, And it's a little bit less infuriating, I hope, than No Hard Feelings, but still plenty of the time you're, it's like watching your best friend make the dumbest possible choices and all you can do is stand by and just hope she figures it out. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good, yeah, that's a good, just and it and it is. I feel like everyone who reads this book will text their best friend, as both Michelle and I did, and say, "Oh my god, it's like me and insert name." Yeah, mm-hmm. we've all we've all been in um, 
there are, you know, several of the characters in in the novel are in different kind of messy relationships, and we've all been in at least one of them before. And if we haven't, then we've been friends with someone who is, and it is both just devastating and mostly just infuriating to watch them do it, um, but really funny when they finally figure their shit out and um, you can laugh about their terrible choices over several glasses of wine. I mean, certainly, like, they, we had so much room to play with um, all of her ex-boyfriends and kind of I needed to demonstrate how she shaped herself around each of them. So there was so much temptation to go into so much detail about exactly who she was in this relationship and what went wrong and why and where they are now. And for a long time I was writing, like she had to go back and resolve things with all of them so that she could move forward in her life. And that was a whole story in itself. And there's no other kind of future plot for her if she's just mining through her past. (laughs) Well, I thought that we still got like quite a strong, I could picture pretty much all of them you know just from the bits of description that we did have it wasn't like oh mysterious x number one mysterious x number two like I think you did a good job of giving just enough that you can see that she does sort of mold herself to different things and I guess that that's this is a good point for me to say how would you describe Marnie and how would you like introduce her? Oh, I mean, we introduce, we meet Marnie with no sense of identity whatsoever. And um, I mean, the first, the first draft certainly reflected that because as you write, you get to know your characters and you just have, you're figuring them out as you go. So um, early Marnie has no identity. She has no idea what she likes or what she wants. She's just kind of adrift and made up of all these pieces of people that she used to love. Um, and as we move through the story, she gets this greater sense of self and um, figures out who she is and finds things to love about herself and things to work on. So, I mean, primarily she's someone who's extremely driven. She just doesn't know what she's driving towards she's someone who prioritizes friendship over over everything else and that's um you know her relationships are the most 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 important things to her and that is where it was so much fun to write about it because you know you got to flesh out all of these wonderful secondary characters and show why they were so important to her oh yes i definitely want to talk more about them but um when um specifically crushing i suppose but any you know story is it the character that comes to you first or like part of the situation, like this idea of Marnie's, you know, rebuilding her life? Did that come first or was it Marnie who came to you first? Yeah. So I've been carrying Penny from No Hard Feelings with me for a really long time. And I think that the case with a lot of first novels is that they are very, very close to you. Even if they're not about you, you put you carry a, your first protagonist with you for such a long time that you put in, so much more time in, into them. Yeah, I would have to think. In, yeah, so much of you in in those characters. Um, when it came to Marnie, the only thing that I wanted to do was not write Penny again. I was just terrified <laughs> that I had one character in me, and I'd just be kind of dropping Penny with a different alias into every story that I wrote forever. Yeah. So, um, I didn't necessarily, I certainly didn't know Marnie as well as I as I knew Penny, but every kind of thing that I knew about Penny, I had to alternate and do the opposite with Marnie. So I, I knew her in opposites, and as I wrote her, I, I got to know her, but the plot for Crushing was mapped out before I dove in and got to know the characters, which was incredibly different from the way that I did know hard feelings. Victor's got something to say about that. 
sorry. He doesn't approve of the process. <laughs> That's so interesting, though, that it did differ between – and it, it totally makes sense, but I wonder – it would be really interesting to see, like, another novel – whether it like what comes first again um mm. or whether it just is constantly changing based on what story you're going to tell the next time uh well i'm in the, the process of i'm in about chapter three or four of my my third book so so far it is again the plot driving that one and i'm figuring out the characters as i go but you know it, it happens in tandem where uh, as I get to know the characters, the more I go, mm, actually, they're not, this plot point doesn't make sense because a character like her is not going to make a choice that puts her in this situation. They wouldn't do that. I have to yeah. go back and fix that now. Yeah. You gotta, they take a life of their own and you just, you get dragged wherever the story takes you. <laughs> um, so it's it's been really hard for us to come up with questions for this. Um, and pretty much everything I thought of was more of a statement than a question. Um, <laughs> But something that I really enjoyed reading in Crushing was looking at, I guess, part of what Marnie's struggling with is that she finds this wonderful new best friend, Claude, who she moves in with. And, I mean, we've all had that experience, too, of not just being in a new relationship. Um, that's like a, a whole feeling in itself. But also when you find a new best friend and you're just like, oh, my God, like it's something really special, I think. And it's almost like being in a relationship. It's like you're dating and like you look yeah. forward to seeing them and all that sort of stuff. Um, so what's interesting then is when Claude gets into a new relationship and we start to sort of see some things that and I could just be like, overanalyzing here but I assume you know maybe mirroring back a little bit of how Marnie acted in relationships mm -hmm. maybe to the detriment of you know her sister or her other friends um and I also really liked the way that you explored I guess a bit of the the stuff that we feel weird talking about which is a bit of that jealousy sometimes of when mm -hmm your friend starts dating someone and you're like, but now they don't have as much time for me. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, when your friend says that they're pregnant and you're like, but that's going to change our relationship. Yeah. And it, it, you feel this like fear, jealousy, like what's our relationship going to be like now? And obviously in terms of the baby, it's something that Marnie's experiencing with her sister too. So you've got like both those relationships in there. And I just think, you know, it's sort of like, I think jealousy in general is an emotion that we we don't want to talk about. It's not mm -hmm. a nice emotion to talk about. And it's definitely not one you want to admit to with your friends because you're meant to be 100% happy for them and everything like that. Um, but I think that was a really interesting thing to explore. So the question at the end of this massive statement that I've made is just, why did you want to explore that in the context of, you know, a rom-com and romantic relationships as well I wanted to write about it because yeah we we fall in love so many in so many different ways and of all the times that I've fallen in love in my life which is hundreds uh the majority of them have been with with my best friends and that rush of meeting someone you just absolutely adore and you just want to spend all of your time with is I mean it's pretty consistent for me whether it's been a platonic or a romantic relationship and so when you you get into that dynamic and you're just yes this is my person now I have someone to text at two in the morning who gets me who's just my favorite 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 person and it's so exciting and you want to hold on to that forever um but we know that 
friendships are just one kind of relationship and socially we prioritize romance so much more than friendship and yeah it can be really scary when your bestie drifts off and and finds their person and you you want to be happy for them and you are happy for them but you're also a little bit sad for yourself and it's really distressing um and that's you know it's a selfish ugly feeling to be jealous of your your friend's partner or your friend's happiness but it is it's scary when oh suddenly this new person's here and he's changed my dynamic but this person's not a part of my life but they are because they're important to my friend and it's this odd greedy ugly adjustment that you have to make and i've done it plenty of times and i'll do it plenty more times but it is interesting and we don't really talk about it because yeah like you said it's not nice it's it's an ugly color on any of us yeah and i thought it was really interesting to explore with the relationship with marnie and her sister as well because the sister or sibling relationship is i mean like you know each other since whenever the youngest one was born and so they've always been together and always been very close and yeah and like whether that's a new romantic relationship or as you get older and then they have their own families and own children and it's just like well I knew you first <laughs> like kind of thing which is yeah there's a possessiveness to it yeah. I have you know squatters rights I've been here who's this guy coming in and ruining everything um yeah and before... he means more because now you have children or something like ugh. Oh, <laughs> Um, but I mean, I, so I have a sister as well and she and I have quite a significant age gap like Marnie and Marnie and Nicola do. Um, and we, we never got along at all. We were just always in a different life stage and it was, we had nothing in common as we, as we got older and, um, it took for her to get married and have a kid and I'm still an infant myself and I don't have a partner or a child but there is something in our 30s where we've balanced out and we've come to recognize each other as equals and it has been so wonderful to realize that I have someone in my corner and someone who has been there and seen all the things and our memories are so finicky and odd it's really nice to have someone who was yep she was at that family reunion and she can remember what our shithead uncle said and back me up when there's there's something that we've we want to complain about or there's a particular dynamic that only siblings have and there is an enduring love and connection that you can't shake um and that has been something that I took for granted my entire life and didn't really know that I had or know that I needed it but having it now is so wonderful Um, And it was so nice to be able to explore that because, you know, it's not perfect just because your siblings doesn't mean you get along or that you can't hurt each other, but you are linked forever and ever. And whether or not you choose to maintain that bond and um, make sure that it's safe and healthy um, is is your choice but it is so fulfilling when you do um so it was really lovely and satisfying to to do that for Marnie and Nicola oh yeah that is such a good answer um (laughs) I just I I mean I have a younger sister as well we've got quite a close um we're quite close in age which was horrible when we were teenagers but it's better now um (laughs) but yeah I just always find the sibling relationship so interesting um and I really loved reading about Marnie and Nicola. Yeah, it was it was lovely to write, um, and it was lovely to 
take what I'd learned from my relationship with my sister and put it into fiction, but also in the opposite way, as I grew Marnie and Nicola's bond, it made me admire my sister so much and appreciate her so much and just, oh, this character got so much comfort from her sister. I didn't know that I was taking it in mine or that I could seek it out in mine in the same way. So it's nice that both things, both relationships and dynamics have, have influenced each other. Oh, yeah, that's oh my great. god, you're making me really want to have like a sibling. Like, I never feel that. I'm, I'm always like, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine being an only child. And then, like, I'm like, oh, that sounds really nice. Sounds nice. <laughs> sounds really nice. <laughs> Don't worry, he's free. He'll he'll talk you up. You're all good. <laughs> I also love this thing that it seems to be a bit of a thing that um women are always like talking about their meaningful relationships with their sisters and then you find out they have a brother and you're like oh whatever see I also find that fascinating because like my so my husband has two sisters and I don't think that they're like super super close or anything but that's probably because he's the brother and they're probably the really close ones and they're just like yeah it's like I'm so I'm I'm not privy to this like amazing sibling relationship I don't see it anywhere because it's like the extra brother he's the odd one out (laughs) yeah he's like the odd one out, and he's also the old like he's the the oldest one and then mm. the other two are a lot closer yeah um, that's my dynamic so, in my family as well he's just yeah uh, he's off doing grown-up stuff I guess I don't know he's I like him yeah, yeah we don't hang out <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think that's probably almost like Jack's sibling relationships that's so funny um and it's not that like I think I saw something um it was a like a column I was reading from Shameless the other day talking about sibling relationships and like sisters specifically and she was talking about how close she is to her sisters and she's like oh yeah and there's my brother Tom but you know like whatever he's just there and I just think that is such an interesting dynamic when we talk about siblings and stuff like that we seem to have brought up siblings a lot in our recent like podcasts I think Caitlin like in the last few I feel like we've had this theme come up a lot they're significant yeah I know I think we find it interesting and it always seems to come up in a way that either, you know, like obviously we enjoy reading about whatever sibling relationship it is and maybe there's something in particular that we want to talk about, but maybe it's just that, you know, I find it interesting because I love it because I have a sister or Michelle finds it interesting because she has no siblings and doesn't get the dynamic like this. (laughs) But I mean, siblings are really weird to write about as well. And I did enjoyed writing this dynamic and hope that I got it quite close there is this weird secret language that siblings have that makes no sense that takes way too much like weird granular explaining to put into writing like just dumb shit the long-running jokes that you've because there's a lifetime of history there like I my sister's name is Morgan and she used to get bullied about being called Morgiana I guess I don't like that makes no sense why would anyone be upset about it but I can call her Morgiana and she'll have a meltdown about it and it's hilarious but you can't put these little teeny tiny little details into into work because they don't really matter to the story but they're so important to your relationship with your sister and with your siblings in general that yeah it makes it really difficult to write them in a way that's accurate because yeah, yeah. I mean, they don't make any sense on the page. It's just a lived experience. Yes, and we're writing a lifetime of history between siblings or even 
a lot of history between people who have maybe been in a relationship for a long time is hard. I imagine writing all the sparkly new fun stuff yeah. is fun and a bit easier, which we of course get with Claude, but yeah. also Isaac. Yeah. Oh gosh. I no, the the dialogue and the the text interactions in this were my my favorite favorite thing the whole way through. Just having these characters bounce off each other was a pure joy. It was so so good. Yeah, I mean we've we've said a bit like it's hard to ask about, and we don't want to give anything away because you should just all read Crushing. But God, I feel like you really captured the like you know getting to know someone texting them and sending them funny pictures and chatting late into the night and everything and then the first time you hang out with them again in person you're like "Mm, how do we do this like yeah oh it's all captured so well I um actually I had a date on Friday night where this came up and we'd met on a dating app a couple of years ago and then kind of stumbled our way back to each other and it came up that yeah modern dating especially via the medium of of dating apps but just texting in general is so I don't know it's overwhelming and it's really strange because whether or not we do it on purpose we're a different character via text or behind a screen um, or even just on the phone than we are in person and it's not that we're trying to be deceptive or anything it's just you're just a slightly different version of yourself when you have the the comfort of of distance or the one second pause to think before you hit send on a text um, and trying to bridge that and then be this person that you've pretended to be while this other person is also trying to be this person that they've been pretending to be is exhausting and really confusing and just rife for failure. So there is no shortage of awkward dates in my past because, you know, I've been doing it very unsuccessfully for a very long time. Yeah, and it's that thing of, like, some people are good at that part and so they like that, the messaging part and they're, like, chatting and and some people don't. And I, in any time that I have ever been on dating apps and you, and guys are like, oh, like, let's meet up in, like, you know, in two days or whatever. I hate this bit. Let's just hang out in person. I'm like, ew, no. <laughs> like, absolutely not. Whereas I was always the opposite because I was like, I'm not – because I was like, I know what I'm like. I'm not getting sucked into this. I want to meet you in person before I spend weeks texting you and then realise you're a dickhead. Like, I, you know, let's meet as quickly as possible. <laughs> But on the and then, side, what if you meet them and you think that they're great and then you just fall for them completely and then the more you get to know them, the more you're like, wait, this person sucks. And you could have found that out through two weeks of swapping Arrested Development gifts and dreadful jokes. Exactly. exactly my strategy. That is a very good point. Um, I'll be honest here, my dating experience is incredibly limited and having just gotten married i'm really fucking hoping i never have to do it again so i'm hoping this one holds out because i can't go through it again yes and as you know loyal listeners have heard many times before um and i even said it in my little maid of honor speech i was the one who actually swiped on jack and messaged him first so yeah but we composed the messages together so. It takes yeah. a team. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, speaking of best friends and, <laughs> and, you know, loving your best friend and stuff, sometimes you're even crazy enough to start a podcast with them. So. 
It sounds great. That's ideal. If my friends and I did anything except talk shit about our other friends, we would do the same. But we can't <laughs> can't publish the, the shit talking. <laughs> no. Yeah. But yes, I think um, talking about the getting to know you phase and like the fun part is probably going to be a bit more fun for us to talk about with Claude anyway. Mm-hmm. And oh, I want to be friends with Claude. She seems so cool. Wonderful. She was. There was a a not brief moment in writing the story where I went I'm gonna have to delete the whole thing and start fresh because Claude is the more compelling character and I want the whole story to feature around her instead and I had to be talked off a ledge by both my agent and my publisher to maybe don't maybe sleep on that you can write from another perspective later but maybe just finish this project she is great though and I think that it it feels hard sometimes just saying that this is a rom-com because I feel like their relationship and their friendship is like as important or as interesting to me as what happens with Marnie and Isaac. It's a it's an arc and it's a love story in itself and yeah that was really important and deliberate as well. Yeah absolutely and you know she goes through her own her own little romantic journey which I think again like there are so many relationships in this that I think people will relate to and as you say like we've all known or been with (laughs) one of these people like you know it's so recognizable um and something that I've just remembered um that I really enjoyed and like a little thing that I guess causes some friction between Marnie and Claude's relationship is Marnie just enjoying working in hospitality and not being like this career go-getter and stuff and I feel like I mean it was a very small part of the story but it's something I guess people our age are starting to either like they're in careers and thinking actually I want to change like maybe this is what I'm cut out for or whatever I just feel like there's so much pressure to write from when you're in high school to like always be striving for the best and doing this and like I love that Marnie's just like yeah but I just like going to work and doing this job and you know I'm not that that's my career I'm not you know like why is one yeah job more worthy than another or what makes something a job versus a career like yeah I mean I have had waves of being very ambitious and then burning myself out completely and I think that we overvalue the idea of ambition and certainly career success Um, and you know the most career contentment I've ever had um, beyond authoring is when I've gone for a very low-key kind of public sector job where I completely forget everything I've done all day as soon as the clock hits five and I get out of my chair and that sounds I don't know lazy or kind of depressing maybe for a lot of people and if that's not your speed that's great but my ability to not be defined by my career and my success has been so much more freeing and has felt so much better than all the kind of career highs that I've had in any other field of work so it was really yeah it was really nice to write a character who was just yep I just like my job and it doesn't have to have more meaning than that I can just enjoy what I do and that can be good enough and she gets lots of pastries I mean that sounds really that yeah is the main perk (laughs) if I had constant access to croissant in my in my day job it would be I'm not hugely productive anyway but it would be a lot less productive (laughs) oh yeah 
I know. The main thing that kept getting me was like, oh, she's always up too early. I couldn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) One downfall. The the one thing she works hard at is showing up on time. And yeah, I don't want to do that either. I think too, just without giving any spoilers, I really loved the way that that work side of things was resolved in the end as well. Um, With Kit, I really loved that and like picturing it all and oh, it was brilliant um Kid was my favorite <laughs> secondary character he didn't get he probably got among the le- the least screen time of all the secondary characters but he was my absolute favorite and i just my, the joy of the whole process was sitting down to write whatever kit was saying he was kit is my id and i love him forever and ever yeah. um yeah, and correct me if i'm wrong but it's like a post covid Mm-hmm. city as well yeah so i just had a moment where we've also just read another book that is set during covid in melbourne and i was like am i thinking of the right book mm-hmm. um but we've talked about this with lots of people and usually we're asking about the decision not to make it covid related mm-hmm. so for you why was it just yeah let's do it and not not set it in a, a time before covid or a non-covid world yeah or like a a, a whatever just like, like not mention it like there's existence. a few little mentions yeah yeah, yeah. Um, well i mean uh any book that's set in in melbourne in this time period is you're going to have to interact with covid in some capacity um i think we learned from from covid happening that you can't set things a year in the future and just assume that everything's going to be as it is and it would have been just mortifying to sit down and hit send on the final manuscript and it starts in like November 2019 and go through all of 2020 with no mention of COVID would just be too mortifying. So I didn't want to set it in the future. And I sincerely just didn't trust my ability to remember what happened when to set it in the years before COVID. So um, we set it in in the months after after COVID. It was late 2021 when, when the story kicks off. So COVID had kind of died down, but there was still remnants of it everywhere. And uh, COVID was also a helpful catalyst for explaining Marnie's career arc um, in that she had been forced kind of back down the corporate ladder into this barista job at a cafe that was kind of struggling in the wake of all of the endless lockdowns in Melbourne. And so that setting gave her great motivation. And, you know, she loves her cafe and she wants to make it work. So having this external force of of COVID and things that you can't really control. You can't make people come back to the cafe and you can't bring the city back to life just, you know, with a good attitude. So it was it was helpful to utilize it as a storytelling tool, but also so much of so many Melbournians just can't be bothered hearing anymore about COVID anymore. So it was just hopefully just kind of sprinkled in as a, yep, we dealt with that, but we're, we're blocking it out. We don't want to hear about it. There yeah. is only a, like a handful of mentions and it's not overpowering at all. But you're right, like the element of it being there to, you know, in relation to her job, but also in relation to perhaps a little bit of uh, recklessness, like uh, going partying after like being allowed out again and like the people's like social battery and things like that. And like, oh, I remember there was one line where there was like forgotten masks on the dance club on like the club dance floor and I was like oh like you can just picture it so clearly and like we all lived through that sort of weird post time 
you know, where people weren't quite sure how to act. And even on dating apps where guys are like, oh, yeah, I'm double vaccinated. And it's like, oh, God. <laughs> Love that. No, um, it has done something strange to to Melbourne, I think, specifically because we were in lockdown. Yeah, probably. Long. But certainly, I like my social battery is not what it was. It used to be that I would no. go to the office five days a week and then do something at least one weekend day. Now I go to the office one day a week and maybe do one other thing during the week. And I am wrecked and not just in like a, oh, I can't really be bothered kind of like, no, I I can't come actually to like drained this yeah. week. I'm not leaving the house again. It's done something strange, and yeah, I maybe we'll go back to normal, or maybe this is just it, and I I can handle two plans a week, and that's that's it forever. I'm so glad I'm not the only one. I was like, is it just me that's like absolutely cannot like I just. Oh, it's so it's so weird how that sort of changed everything. Um, we ask similar questions uh, to you know some other very character driven kind of funny novelists like Vari McFarlane. I think we definitely asked because we find her writing really funny, um, okay. and I found your writing style really really funny. And in fact, like I literally like reading your stuff just make, gives me a bit of an existential crisis as a writer because I was like I don't think I could ever just be that like witty but also anyway it was brilliant um but what I'm always interested in is how do you strike the right balance between like the observations of things and then like bringing that humor in and is it something that comes naturally to you in your first draft or is it something that you work on in edits uh, I think it's both. I mean, as someone who's both vaguely self-aware and moderately depressed, there are always kind of moments where, like, I'll be sobbing on the floor of the shower, just having a complete meltdown over absolutely nothing, and I'll, like, see outside myself and be like, you're being fucking ridiculous. Like, this is... <laughs> Calm down. Like, you just got a slightly snarky text message with a full stop at the bottom of it. Like, relax. <laughs> and you can see that even kind of the worst situation, there is a point where you can step back and see it without your emotion in it. So I kind of, sometimes that's evident in in the drafting where, you know, Marnie's having just this complete legitimate hysterical breakdown, barefoot on a tram on her walk of shame. And you're just like, this is, obviously she's traumatized, but it's also just a little bit funny. So I can see it as it's happening, but then it also happens when I'm editing where you kind of, yep, you've been in this writing hole for so long, you come back and go, oh, she's just been miserable for like four whole chapters. We need a comedic break to shake things up. So it's it's both is the answer. Um, but there is still, yeah, a lot of a lot of personal experience in, in stepping back and just laughing at yourself in your absolute worst moments. Yeah, I mean, I am one for like the dark humour and, you know, just, just the self-deprecating. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm always doing that. So I love that sort of stuff in books. You, got it. you can't take yourself too seriously. Everything is eventually funny again. And the sooner you can inject <laughs> that humour into it, the better you're going to feel. Oh, absolutely. Very much a go-to classic question on our podcast is asking people about their you know journey to publication and everything and obviously we're interviewing you for your second novel um but take us back and tell us a bit about no hard feelings and the journey to getting that book on bookshelves yeah well i mean speaking of, of lockdown no hard feelings was my lockdown novel it was um my i think when did lockdown happen i was 
about to turn 29 when when lockdown kicked off and I just panicked at, at 30 was on the horizon and I hadn't hit any of the markers of adulthood that we we associate with our with our 30s whether that was buying a house or finding a long-term partner or kind of feeling very settled I didn't have any of those things and I was really panicking and especially when COVID hit suddenly like well there was always the option that maybe I could fall in love and be married in six months and that maybe that'll happen. And suddenly that was just ripped away from me. And those, you know, they weren't even things that I really took seriously, but having been robbed of the agency was, was really frightening. So writing a book was something that I could control. And uh, I decided that I needed it done and submitted by the time I'm, by the time I turned 30. And I managed to do that with uh, maybe 10 or 15 days to spare. So dopamine rush in, in wow. um, <laughs> um, to get it published. Um, I sent it off to a manuscript assessor because all you ever hear is how small the Australian publishing industry is and you only get one shot and you're probably going to go into the slush pile and you can't resubmit a manuscript no matter how much you change it and just all of these really intimidating rules. So I sent it to a manuscript assessor so that it could be in the best possible shape before I sent it off anywhere. And uh, she very generously um, gave me some names of some agents that she thought would be a good fit for No Hard Feelings. And off it went. I picked one and we pitched it to four different publishing houses and ended up getting offers from three, which is very validating. Um, Bragged to my therapist. Big time. Um, and it was a really, really speedy process. I think we got the, um, I think we must've had our first meeting with HarperCollins kind of late 2021 and it was on shelves by March. So it was probably, it was less than six months between signing and, and hitting shelves, which is, I've heard later, very, 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 very quick. So a surprisingly almost suspiciously easy process for me um and I yeah I got all the punishment I needed by having to write crushing um in about six months and yeah (laughs) I I yeah I've I've done the work now and I'm very tired and very grateful but yeah it's it's been a very speedy but very gratifying journey yeah that is that is quite speedy but I suppose that's the thing when a book comes like finished as fiction so often does especially debut fiction it's been worked on and it's been read by other people and yeah we don't often need that long we can just kind of get straight into it (laughs) all I wanted you know one of the first questions I asked in any of my publishing interviews was when is it going to hit shelves I just wanted my book in my hands I was terrified that they'd be like yeah 2025 that sounds great no I just I wanted to get this thing started so um it wasn't a defining uh, factor in choosing HarperCollins, but it certainly helped to to have it go so quickly. And it was, yeah, surreal that I went from 30 with no plans for anything to my name on a beautiful book on a, on a shelf in six months. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. And a book that's been really, really well received as well. And has been listed for, you know, like Booktopia's like book of the year and the Dimmick's one as well um <laughs> I'm, I'm not i'm not summing this up very well they're but... the booktopia favorite australian book yeah. yes and Dimmick's top 101 2023 yeah. which i don't think we have the final list for yet no, for either not. of those but i'll have you know that i voted for both 
Thank you. Uh, <laughs> you know, the awards don't matter, but awards matter to me so much. I need. Yeah. Um, I mean, external validation and all that, but that like, yeah, I am. I'm absolutely like external validation is everything. Thank you. Please it helps. Tell me that I'm good. Um, no, your <laughs> feelings was was very well received. Um, Instagram was was a big factor in in its success, and I think that is in no small part to its beautiful cover. Um, because you want to you want to pick up this book and you want to post it and it just looks wonderful on your grid. But um, it has also largely been embraced by mostly twenty and thirty something women who relate to the agony of your late twenties, and so that is really really validating that it, people felt like they could relate to a character like Penny or that they knew someone like her and they could find comfort in the story was just yeah just delightful and more more than you can ask for when you start writing something like that and for crushing apart from having less time to write it uh you know you already had a publisher all of those sorts of things how was the experience of getting crushing ready for publication different was it uh, different it was it was different because as we say it um it's not the story that i've been carrying with me or the character that i've had uh for such a long time so it was a a fun really fun blend of a tight deadline that I agreed to before I knew whether or not I could meet it. Um, the terror of a sophomore slump after people were, were so lovely about No Hard Feelings, all I could think was getting a Goodreads review that said, I love No Hard Feelings, but I hated this. It's, <laughs> it's still, it still haunts me at the moment and we'll, we'll see and it'll inevitably happen. Um, the process for, for getting crushing written was frantic um the deadline was tough but more than that it was reminding myself that I'd done this before and that I could do it again um there's a lot of imposter syndrome that that went into it and the story that I started with the overall plot of it didn't change too much but the tone and the heart of it changed so so much especially between the third and final drafts of it in the end I am so so proud of it and so happy with the way that it's turned out it's um I prefer it to know had feelings now and I just adore every single character in it even the ones that we're not supposed to like oh that is so wonderful I think yeah second books can be you know we hear it all the time they're so stressful for people and it's um obviously it's a lot of you know, self-imposed stress, but a lot from the outside world as well, because, you know, No Hard Feelings was, you know, read and sold and people bought it. And, you know, you had this non-existent second book that was acquired by the publisher with the contract and now you've got to do it. And yeah. who knows if it's possible? Who, you know, is it just yeah. No Hard Feelings with a couple of names squished around? Is it, you know, is it going to get done at all? Will I have a complete breakdown before I can hit send on the final manuscript? I don't know. We didn't, and I didn't know until it was over whether or not it was going to get done. But you've done it and it is incredible. Yeah, <laughs> like it's amazing book. Yeah, loved it. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, no, that's that's wonderful. I'm in that that horrible drought where it's done and I can't change anything about it. It's off to the printers, but it also hasn't been read yet. So it's just this nothing. I can't revisit it, and no one else is really visiting it yet. And so it's just it's very lonely, and I just want to talk. It's a very about strange it. lull, I think, isn't it? Yeah. I you yeah. Can't I get just praise from people. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, I think that is a good place to end it on um, with us saying, again, how wonderful crushing is. We really, really loved it. Um, Where can people find and follow you online? Uh, On Instagram, I'm Genevieve.NVK. And on Twitter, I'm Genevieve underscore NVK. Um, And I talk a lot of shit and post my dog a lot. He's really cute. So it's definitely worth the follow. Yeah, absolutely. Follow for Victor the Corgi. Love that. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Better Words. You can chat to us on Instagram at betterwordspod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review. Bye.